KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. The show all about housing issues, land use issues, and online discourse and much more. Attend the program. Jordan Grimes of Peninsula for Everyone. Here to talk about his original reporting on California's number one NIMBY conspiracy, Livable California. Let's just get into it. So welcome, Jordan. Hey, Mark. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on again. Yeah, thanks. It's your first uh, cyber episode. Let's see how this <laughs> see how this goes. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, so uh, you know, it's uh, you know things things aren't you know great right now. We're we're talking about I think focusing a lot of the weird MAGA NIMBY stuff. But for right now, I think to start off, quick uh, quick tenant update. Uh, a few weeks ago, we're talking to Shanti Singh about possible saves for tenants in California, 1436. Uh, was a was a good bill that could have done a lot, and instead it looks like we're not getting that. We're getting something pretty bad from Gavin Newsom, so that's fun. Yeah. So uh, rest in peace, AB fourteen thirty six. Uh, a good bill for sure. Um, AB fourteen thirty six has now become AB thirty eighty eight, and it is indeed uh, the ugly redheaded stepchild of fourteen thirty six. You know, put together as part of a deal by Gavin, uh, the leadership of the legislature um, and uh, the landlord lobby, essentially. And unlike 1436, this bill has far fewer protections. Um, You have means testing, uh, which we all love. Renters above 130% of area median income have to provide proof of COVID hardship. The bill expires on February 21st. Um, or not not the bill, but the protections for for renters expire February 21st of 20, excuse me, February 1st First. of 2021, at which point renters then have to pay their rent in full or face eviction. Uh, a number of other things, it, pre- it preempts any new local legislation to make it easier protect, to protect renters. It's it's a bad bill. It's just it's a it's a bad bill all around. I did not realize the local preemptions were were uh, that was happening. That's that's yes. insanely bad. Yeah, it's very it's very very bad. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> Gavin in general, you can kind of depend. He will do the bare minimum uh, to kind of keep his brand image up. And I mean, I think he just you know he really. I think delivered less than even you expect from Gavin Newsom. Like this is like it's hard to say, it's hard to even say it's better than nothing. It's really really bad. It it is, and it's crazy because we already expect you know with Gavin Newsom the bar is already on the floor, and you don't think it can get lower, and then just when you think that the expectations are just as low as they're going to get. Um, Gavin just surpasses them. Um, And that's exactly what happened here. You now have this bill that instead of a wave of evictions, you will have um, a not even particularly slow drip, but a a slow and steady enough drip that people won't really be paying attention, uh, I think. And I think that's sort of the the goal for for the California Apartment Association, for sure, and, and for the landlord lobby. But yeah, that's exactly. what we are, you know, that's what we're stuck with. Yeah, so uh, tenant organizations are mobilizing. Keep your eyes out. Uh, plenty more coming down the pipe as far as actions to see what kind of power can be leveled against it. Uh, but just, you know, keep a heads up. 
that's the bad news in the press. But uh, yeah, I think with the, the meat we're going to get into, uh, you have become an expert uh, on the California NIMBY mind, uh, if nothing else, by attending the Livable California uh, phone calls uh, for, for quite, a f- quite a few months now. Right? How, how long has you, have these been going on? So, you know, that's a very good question. I think the first one was actually in December. Um, the first the first ever Livable California meeting I went to was way back in May, I want to say, of last year. They held a local meeting at the library in San Carlos, and I was just too curious, you know? I, I wanted to hear what they were saying. Um, and so that was sort of my first in-person meeting that I went to. I went to another in uh los altos i think it was los altos back in october which featured uh former san francisco planning commissioner dennis richards love that guy oh truly truly the best uh and then i think it was starting in december that they had either december or january of this year that they had their first you know telecon um or at least that was the first one i went to and i've been i've been going ever since it's it's endlessly fascinating to me the the mind of the california nimby it's it's very weird because I mean I feel it's ostensibly a form of outreach, uh, not only to kind of the depraved right wing, but essentially to everybody. But the more they talk, the worse they look. Is I I think you broadcasting their messaging is becomes very clear. Which uh, I don't know if, if if your whole thing is kind of just being the weird cabal of of, of nimbies in power. I I think their outreach is just a very weird tack for them to take. You you know it is, and I do. It's sort of funny in in a sense because they very clearly sometimes they seem to care and sometimes they don't um, like they don't like being described as you know old white suburbanites. Um, they went through sort of a schism last year where Susan Kirch, who is uh, from Marin County and is one of the original founders of the group. Um, sort of departed the organization and an internal email from. It was either from Stephen Nestle or, or Rick Hall. I can't remember which. Uh, Rick is now the president. There's an internal email that we saw that basically said they did not want to be thought of as uh, wealthy white suburbanites. Um, and so instead, they replaced Susan with uh, Rick Hall, who is now the president, who is a uh, wealthy white retired oil and gas executive from San Francisco. So they locked off the last part. So, so he, he, he is, does he live in the mission or does he just run the mission for mission or SS for SF mission defenders account, but he isn't actually living in the mission? It's my understanding that he owns a duplex in Potrero Hill. Mm. That's, that's my understanding. Yeah. I mean, so I, is, is part of this, the fact that like Susan thought some people are too brash to the Nestles and the Rick Halls, and then she left because they couldn't keep their messaging right. Cause I mean, let's, let's pick apart a few, a few names here. I mean, I think Susan Kirsch, uh, you know, she is, you know, a very, I think she, she presents as a very polite older woman who is just, you know, she's tries to be the every woman of, of you know, kind of old boomers who don't want things to change. Whereas Stephen Nestle is just, he, like, he is legitimately just a right-wing uh, suburban uh, chud. Yes. Uh, yeah. Stephen, Stephen is the guy, for, for those blessedly unfamiliar with, with Stephen, uh, Stephen is known as Save Marinwood on Twitter. Lovely account. Um, he's, he's also known as as a guy who uh, punched another guy in the face um, o- over a over a local dispute and 
referred to affordable housing in Marin as bringing in uh, MS-13 gang members. So yeah, I think I think he made MS he missed he made the MS-13 sign and then hung like just started started holding it up. So that kind of brought him some fame. Uh, I mean, okay, so here is uh, let's kind of get down to one I think big rift, which is. You know, uh, you know, the livable California, it tries to be, this is for equity, this is for kind of the California way of life, but it has, you know, it tries to be not a MAGA flavor, but ruining their plans right now is the fact that in 2020, uh, the Trump administration has, I think, correctly realized that, you know, look at like California suburbanites, uh, these people, you know, they are uh, ostensibly good democratic liberals but really uh if you scratch them they have a lot of right-wing tendencies so they've just gone all we're gonna drive the suburbanites to go maga and i've said this for years i mean i thought that the palo alto nimbies will go maga before they'll ever support uh any change in their neighborhoods and i think trump is smart enough to pick up on this yeah i'm not i'm not sure that that will actually happen like uh, there's been there's been a considerable amount of discussion since Trump came out with his, you know, anti-single-family zoning comments, um, his low-income housing in the suburb comments. There's been a considerable amount of discussion amongst urbis, uh, amongst urbanists, amongst you know the left sort of yimby types, about whether or not, um, you know, essentially about how suburbanites would react to this, whether some would actually start to question their own motives, whether they would deflect or not, or whether they would decamp to Trump. Yeah. Um, and I think the second option is is mostly what's happening. I from what I can from what I can see, both from livable California and and sort of the local sphere, um, more what you're seeing is just endless um logical leaps to say like no i'm not really like trump um you know we're we're not like trump at all but uh we still don't want these things either um yeah i I think that's i mean it's it's very hard for for someone to change their tribal identity in the course of a few months and i think i think trump is smartly picking up on it but he's biting off just i think one of the weirdest things but he is identifying internal contradictions in the mind of these people. I mean, I think one of the funniest is, uh, okay, well, let's get into like one of the crucial details uh, that Trump is kind of latching onto is AFFH, uh, which is, uh, you know, a HUD policy affirmatively furthering fair housing, uh, which was actually in play in Marin. This is, uh, and, and just to say, like we mentioned Stephen Nestel, he was posting on his uh, blog, uh, people's like, look up white genocide. They're trying to cleanse Marin County of white people. Uh, but then you also get people who are more crunchy liberals like um, uh, Mary McNamara, uh, who uh, of you know famously protested uh, George Lucas's uh, you know low income housing in in uh, Marin County. But she was like posting. It's like you know, it's like I feel really conflicted. You know, I, I I'm for healthcare and gay rights, but I hate HUD's incursions and I hate high density and. I think it's that is a very very common uh, conflict you see among uh, these people. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I think you know I think what you will find is the the sort of hashtag resist and resistance liberals are the same people who and the never Trumpers are you know are the same people who also love exclusionary suburbs, and it's a really hard 
I think it's actually doing a toll on their mental health, quite frankly, because you have these people who are so dedicated to two positions, um, these positions of, I don't want apartments in my suburb, I like my suburban way of life, but also I hate Donald Trump. Um, and I really think it's tearing them apart a little bit because they have been so dedicated to both of these positions. And now Donald Trump and the MAGA cohort are ex are expanding on um, and moving in on their own territory and they don't know what to do with it. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of hilarious watching their brains break in real time. And it goes to the point. Okay. So like, you know, I would say the idea that you should get rid of exclusionary zoning, where does that belong? Is it a left wing thing? Because I would say the fact that the right wing hates it, uh, be a point in the favor of the left wing. The fact that it's too extreme, even for, I would say the center-left uh, lib types would point to me that it's left-wing because it makes them very uncomfortable. It's too much change. But it's very funny that people will try to paint it as right-wing. One of the funniest people is uh, John Marish, uh, the mayor of Beverly Hills, uh, just paints everyone who uh, talks about land use at all as a uh, Wimby, which is Wall Street in my backyard. I, I, just, a, just a great guy. He's, he, he stalks you on Twitter a lot. He's a, he's a really cool guy. Yeah, John. Uh, John's great, um, and and by great, I mean John. John is great in that um, he's a brilliant example of when Yimbies want to show how absurd uh, exclusionary reactionary suburbanites are. John is is like example number one, um, and yeah, he's he's a really interesting guy in that he's as as far as I know a registered Republican. I mistakenly referred to him as a as a liberal recently. Um, because he he does he talks all about you know decommodifying housing and and protecting uh, people from Wall Street, um, but in the same breath he'll say things like you know the Yimbies want to make all of us into renters, and yeah. obviously giant dog whistle there, um, giant enormous dog whistle there, and I think that that is what comes of people who are who are either you know hashtag resistance type people or you know conservative light type people who want to co-opt and use the language of anti-gentrification activists but don't actually have any real idea of what those policies look like and that's how you get those kind of statements and and john is always good for a laugh in that regard yeah, I think, okay, so I mean, to put aside, I mean, I would say the fact that it means change, uh, I would just say that opposing exclusionary zoning is a left-wing thing, but I think it's very interesting. Let's look at the ideology of, that is kind of the default uh, homeowner ideology in California. I would say, you know, some people kind of toy around with it. There's not many people who I think have like really built up the ideology to a really complete whole. Uh, you got a few people, and I think they're they're pretty great. Uh, Joel Kotkin, uh, I would just want to point out, if you don't know Joel Kotkin, he is kind of uh, the king of like suburban supremacists, and has been in the game for 50 years, you know. And uh, he has been he was on one of the recent uh, uh, Liberal California calls. But I guess uh, what's 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 your what, what was your experience of just seeing Joel Kotkin interact with these people? Okay, we'll get more into what his his thing is later. But I'm just kind of curious what your how that call went. Oh, that call was, you know, so like I sort of contrary to, you know, you have you have guys like uh, uh, guys like, you know, former former mayor uh, Marish, who are sort of 
are sort of funny to me. But then you then you have guys like Joel Kotkin who are are actually, frankly, quite terrifying to me because they actually do wield real power. Um, they're they are listened to. Joel Kotkin had a massive spread in the LA Times recently penning his theories on suburban supremacy and how uh, density impacts COVID or, well, the other way around. Um, that call was interesting because it sort of laid out many of, many of the points that Kotkin makes are not themselves incorrect. It's really the conclusions that he comes to that are so incredible. Um, he specifically focuses a lot on how um, the middle class can no longer afford cities. And that is that is absolutely true. The, midi the middle class cannot afford cities anymore. Um, they have, the cities have become more and more unaffordable. But he diagnoses this as, um, or, or basically says the solution is to eliminate urban growth boundaries and just build out to places like Tracy and Modesto and the Central Valley. Um, and it's sort of wild to see that it's a very 1970s attitude and it's sort of wild to still see it still in play. Um, but, but there it is. Yeah, he throws around the number a lot, 5%. 5% of California's land is developed, which implies, oh, there's plenty of housing just as long as we uniformly uh, have the suburbs spread out throughout California, which is, I mean, at once, I mean, not wrong, but I mean, that's, I, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, the Central Valley, you can't just kind of spread the suburbs out evenly. That's a very weird idea, but he just says like, okay, I mean, there's nothing, <laughs> it's the feasibility of, of, you know, he has like a few things he latches onto, and you go back for years and years and years, he always has like some sort of new fix, but he's always like, kind of like, you know, technology is going to finally change cities and make cities obsolete, and now his, his biggest tech uh, stuff is self-driving cars, as well as remote work, and this is the new tech that is going to make cities obsolete, but uh, I mean, it's it just uh, he he keeps on plugging away at it, and it's, it's really funny to go back and just like look at his his, his history. But you know, in, in his vision, it's coherent, you know. But it's kind of it's kind of kind of scary of just you I know Levittown forever. Yeah, it, exactly. It's it's Levittown into the distance as far as you can see. And it, what's sort of funny to me about it is like, this is what we, this is the policy that we embraced, you know, from the fifties on. And it's very clearly failed, especially from a climate perspective. Like it's failed from a climate perspective. It's failed from an affordability perspective. Um, and it's what he, you know, it's what he wants to continue. And it's, it is insane when you look at, when you look at the climate catastrophe that we're staring down, that his idea is to continue building single family homes as far as the eye can see. Um, that's nuts. That's like, that's certifiably nuts. Um, and yet there are people that are, that are seriously embracing it and taking it seriously. And again, the guy had, you know, a, a multi-page spread in the LA Times. So it's, it's something that people, I guess, in a sense, are still taking seriously. And it's, and it's disturbing to see that. Yeah, I mean, he always. I mean, you can go back. He's he's, he's he gets tapped on to write op eds in a lot of places regularly. He's he's been a fixture, but he is. You know, I mean, if you just call yourself like an expert 
on the you know future of housing, then people just you know like it. Especially if you tell people what you want. And he has been writing in like the OC Register, uh, which is a very you know that makes sense. It's a very right wing kind of thing. Sure. But then you know like you know it go- goes anywhere. But it's funny you go back. He he is a creature of the of like the new left. You know in the early seventies he was writing for the San uh, Francisco Bay Area Guardian. Uh, and, you know, I think from a left-wing perspective was protecting, this is like one of his early pieces, 1973, protecting Rock Ridge in Oakland. Huh. Have you ever read this article? <laughs> I, I haven't, but that sounds like Kolkotkin to me. It's really good. So this, it's, he says it's called Rock Ridge Under Siege, uh, and he talks about how Rock Ridge definitely is one no, of the... Definitely no dog whistles there. It's insane. I mean, he says it's one of the finest remaining neighborhoods but it's integrated. Uh, and, I mean, he, he completely ignores the history. Rock Ridge, you can look up, there's famous flyers of Rock Ridge in the 20s, maybe 30s, saying, we proudly uh, have, uh, you know, uh, uh, covenants on our properties that do not allow Negroes or Japanese people. Uh, and he says, by 1973, it's integrated, which means it was a 20% black population. At that point, uh, Oakland as a whole was 59% black. Uh, so this was, you know, kind of a relatively white outpost of the city, and he said it is going to be destroyed by the incursion of high-density housing. Uh, but he also says, oh, what is this? This is going to hurt the little guy. This is going to hurt the small businessman. This is going to hurt, you know, it's going to be uh, big, powerful developers. And that's like always the weird left-right fusion. It's like you can always say if anything happens, because if any construction firm goes in, there's obviously a lot of capital that it takes to build a building. So you can always say, oh, those are the bad guys, the big guys. And, you know, it's it's Wall Street in your backyard uh, all, all over again. But it's it's always been this history. And, you know, he has, he has been pounding away at this. And I think what's really funny is what you said. He has won every step along the way. From the early 70s to now, he's opposed. He's, you know, been behind down zoning. He's been uh, against any sort of uh, development uh, of any density of any sort. He has continued to win every single fight. And then in the end... It's unaffordable, and he says, "What what has what has happened? This is this is this is all gone wrong." But listen to me, I have the solution. It's like, why should we listen to you? Like your plan has been the one we've been using. <laughs> exactly. Last- I mean, his the you know the Joel Kotkin plan is the defin is Einstein's definition of of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Um, and it is you know when it comes when it comes to the whole leftism thing, I, I do think. That that Kotkin strategy and and the livable California strategy that it, you know, sort of evolved into of hiding hiding the opinion hiding the opinions of of wealthy affluent suburbanites and homeowners, um, and covering it with this flimsy veneer of equity uh, language to to make it palatable to the left or at least make it palatable to leftists who. Um, don't want to do anything other than scratch the surface. Um, and, and I think that you're right. I think that has worked. I think that has largely worked. Uh, that's how you got, you know, in, in the 1980s, the, uh, you know, sort of the caricature of the evil developer, right? Um, that is that is sort of how that happened. Yeah, The Guardian, since the early 70s, was, was promoting... Uh, you know, fighting Manhattanization. They said you know, San Francisco is already being Manhattanized. We need to stop the Manhattanization elsewhere. And I mean, the question is, what is the key dividing line between the Kotkinites 
and I'd say, you know, people, uh, you know, whatever you, left urbanist, whatever you call it. And, and the question is, they would love to say it's a fact that they hate Wall Street and they hate big developers. Uh, and we love them. And I would say that's a very strange, I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm up for all sorts of alternatives. I'm not really in love with making sure that our existing development uh, things are in, in place. But I'd say to me, the big difference is the fact they are really for this weird Jeffersonianism of small property owning individual nodes stretching out. And, and there's, I mean, it's, it's a very classic libertarian mindset of, you know, everyone's owns property and, you know, everything is sanctified. And they have a very nice little bit where this is the thing you hear on Fox News now when they're talking about, uh, you know, the assault in the suburbs. They say your property rights are under attack. Your zoning rights are under attack. It's it's very weird that zoning is in the bundle of property rights. But I guess to me, that's how I would frame it. I think the major thing that differs that differs from them and left urbanists is they believe in a Jeffersonian property-owning uh, democracy, whereas left urbanists, I think, feel that even if that is a bit you know desirable in some ways, I'm not really sure. I think it's kind of xenophobic and weird. It's it's not possible. I think the history of implementing it shows that our tools of putting in place have like we we cannot administer a Jeffersonian property owning suburban uh, democracy without it exploding into high costs. Yeah, and and I definitely think that's that's correct. I I do think the dividing line is you will you will see, you know, left left EMBs or left urbanists say, in in addition with leftists in general, that housing cannot be both affordable and a good investment. Um, yes. And it's it's interesting to watch and see what like decommodifying de housing means to people like John Mirish. Like um, there, there's a call, there's a livable California call a while back where uh, he made the argument that, you know, they they being livable California members, um, what they what they really want, they don't actually care about property values. What they really want are these nice communities, um, and that uh, they to decommodify housing, they basically may have to lose, you know, some of their property value. Mm. Um, and decommodifying housing does not mean you lose two hundred grand off you know, the property value of your $3 million home. That's not what decommodifying housing is. Um, and they don't really understand that, which is which is funny to watch um, and, and to listen to for sure. But I, I do think that is the dividing line is you have these you have these suburbanites who do you're you're absolutely right. That's Jeffersonian in a sense. Um, and they strongly believe in home ownership. And I think that's another dividing line. I don't think you will find a lot of socialists, a lot of leftists who believe in the institution of home ownership. Certainly, there there are some, um, and that's that is what it is. Um, but that that vision of American home ownership as the way to build wealth in this country is, I think, integral to uh, the suburban mindset and the livable California mindset, and that is where things really start to diverge. Yes, and I think I think it's interesting. You, you can also pick that apart. I mean, to say there are two things. There's the Jeffersonian ideal of everyone has their homestead and they have this stable little house and they live in this quaint little house forever. And then there's the idea that it not only is stable, but it's also, you know, a money generator. And 
I would say, I mean, I think there even is a way to rectify the first with their goal in a way that actually makes sense. This would be uh, more or less removing property rights and allocating people into villages as a community land trust model. It could even be low density. I think this would be kind of gross. It could go wrong in a lot of ways, but it's at least consistent that it could be not an investment. It could be decommodified and still be a home ownership that's stable in a way. But they don't even latch towards that because they can't get rid of, like the monkey, uh, you know, with their hand in the jar, they can't get rid of their home equity. They're no. all investors, and they all know. We, you know, we may say that it's not about the investment, but they will never give up their investment. Exactly. And it, like you said, they, they may say, oh, we don't care about our property values. Like, we can't, you know, do anything with our property values. But if overnight someone was to say, okay, your neighborhood won't be upzoned, but your property value is zeroed out, uh, yeah, like they'd, they'd flip out, absolutely. Um, and, they, and, they would never go for that. And that could happen. I mean, every city could, any moment they choose, say, let's decommodify housing by imposing 100% uh, capital gains taxes on any real estate that's sold in this area. So if, if Palo Alto, you sell your house for $3 million, you know, in fact, you only sell for 100000 the city gets the rest, uh, which in a lot of ways would say, okay, it's decommodified, you know, it doesn't matter you know, <laughs> you, what you sell it at. You're not speculating anymore. Uh, but as we see, homeowners hate that. Uh, uh, San Francisco was implementing capital gains taxes, and they uh, made sure it did not affect anyone under $10 million because people who have who are mere single-digit millionaires uh, do not consider like, well, I still want those millions. Uh, and I, I think it's to, to pretend that you can get homeowners on board to say, okay, your entire investment is being wiped out and you're going to break even. That is going to be wildly unpopular. A- absolutely. And regardless of whatever equity language they dress, they dress it up in, um, you know, just, just a basic view of really attending any livable California call will will ultimately result in um, the complete obliteration of, of that notion. You will see people like Sharon Commons, who is a um, Recode LA, you know, zoning member, um, say things like, this is, this is a favorite of mine, when they were talking about SB 1120, uh, the statewide duplex bill, which just happens to be up today, um, Sharon, uh, who who is in LA, I think she lives in Calabasas. Oh, it's a Joel uh, Stewart uh, neighbor. I, I believe so. Um, somewhere around there, basically said, um, is, if SB eleven twenty passes, I'm not going to vote for any new taxes. Um, there is there's absolutely this hilarious anti tax contingent there. I mean, uh, Sharon I hate that you Shelley. Made me, I hate that you made me do this, but I mean, I'm doing a tax revolt. I hate this because I'm a good I'm a good liberal. But grab just... grab your sandwiches. We're doing a tax revolt. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there there are a number of you you can't go a single livable California call without seeing in the chat. You know, there's this one guy who's like, everyone should join Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Nice. And like, it does. It just completely erodes any sense of or or any. Pretense that they're, that they're yeah yeah it's just gone it just it completely obliterates it and and it's it's hilarious to watch and see at the same time the sort of like logical uh, misconceptions and leaps that they make um, but it you know it is what it is 
So I, I read your threads, but I've never actually been on the meetings. How, how many people are in attendance and like, what's the general, like how, how chaotic or how organized are the, are the meetings? Oh, the Louisville California meetings themselves are actually really funny. And, and I, I do, I complain about them because like you do need either a stiff drink or, or eye bleach afterwards. Um, but they're, they're very funny. And generally there are, um, around a hundred, maybe 120 people like sort of is what they max out at. Um, is, and, is this is this one big like is this a Zoom meeting with them yeah, in a bunch of panels and yes oh yes, that sounds yes, right that oh, sounds so wonderful it's it's wonderful and it's like I didn't know it was that big oh yeah it's it's great and they're they're from all over the state and so you've got people like Lydia Koo from Palo Alto you'll get your Ray Wangs from Cupertino um, you know your uh, Dan Debouchers from uh, from Arinda. Uh, all combined with, you know, the, the SoCal people, um, your Bill Brands of Redondo Beach, uh, you know, your Jill Stewart's of Calabasas, et cetera. And there's always, without fail, technical difficulties in the first five minutes. Um, nice. Like either somehow someone gets unmuted, someone's eating something, um, you know, and it and it's loud, and like fifteen people will jump in and say someone is talking. Please mute them, and it uh, without fail. Like the first five to ten minutes always revolve around that, and then you know Jill Stewart comes on, does a little rant, and then they generally jump into uh, the presenter. So, do you see whether in the chat or just any kind of you know temperature from the from the crowd any of the dividing lines between you know I'd say some of the dividing lines that are out there are some like the more you know just outright MAGA people and the people who are really are resist people and then another dividing line would be you know, NorCal and SoCal I think of different housing kind of cultures uh, I think right now I'd say SoCal is kind of like five years in the past is is my is my general uh, diagnosis. Uh, or any other any other schisms that you see, or do they get in lockstep as needed, and not not there's, squabble? Yeah. Oh no, there's absolutely schisms for sure. I'd say the biggest one is north and south. Um, so for for sure, there's some animosity between, um, you know, between Northern California and, and Southern California. Um, Jill doesn't have a position on the board, but she leads the calls, um, and there's definitely. There's definitely some some tension. She and she and Rick do this funny like husband and wife squabble thing that's very funny to watch. Um, like they'll they'll bicker with each other, and I I can't tell if it's like you know playful or if it's I don't feel like it is. I feel like there's tension there. Like I don't really like you very much, but we have to keep this organization together. And recently, it has really become very Southern California dominated. Um, definitely the growth that is that is happening in the org is happening on the Southern California side. The people in Southern California appear to be much better at bringing in new members than the Northern California people, for, for sure. Inter- I mean, that's it was a big shock in the last couple of elections that Orange County, you know, went blue for the first time in forever. But I mean, I think ultimately the core kind of stuff there, it is just going to be a lot uh, I think more right wing. It has a history, and I mean you see this at every level. I mean I think local politics, but then you know as far as all the state bills, uh, it's you know always introduced by the Northern California people, and it's always killed by some uh, you know you know just uh, you know NIMBY chud in Pasadena or whatever. 
uh, like just like Clockwork, Portentino, and all these other. There's like no nothing good com- come from Southern California. Yeah, and and I think I think sort of one of the differences is, uh, yeah, the just the NIMBY culture in Southern California seems to be much stronger than it than it is in Northern California. The the pro housing movement has really grown up here, um, to to an extent which it hasn't down there. And I I think as an example, you know, you'll have. Senator Portentino was a guest on on one of their calls. Um, council member uh, Paul Caretz of LA City Council was uh, was a guest on one of their calls. Um, uh, I think Herb Wesson was on one of their calls, who's also an LA City City Council member. Bill Brand was a guest, who's the you know mayor of Redondo Beach, etc. Um, yeah. And so there is a much stronger presence down there where. Like regardless of everything else, I mean, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors is what it is. Um, but I don't think you'd ever see like Aaron Peskin or or Gordon Marr appear on a livable Cal as a guest of Livable California, despite the fact that many of their supporters um, are Livable California members. I don't think they are. Uh, I think I the support for that is not strong enough up here that, that they could just go on a call without it being, uh, you know, called out. Yeah. It's, 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 there's a different culture, certainly of the SF culture, which is dominant up here is if you're a NIMBY, you have to be doubly woke to make up for the fact you're NIMBY. You have to kind of, uh, outpace them with your, with your messaging on the left, which is, you know, Peskin's master of this, uh, you know, as, as opposed to the, the Southern California people, uh, you know, I mean, Coretz and, uh, you know, Wesson and all this, they, they are, you know, usually just like pro-police ghouls in a lot of ways. And they, you know, it just, it, it you can just say it in the open as opposed to it's very, very funny that, uh, you know, I think you won't find any pro-police, you know, voices who really proudly say it. It's always kind of, even the people who are, like a Sandra Lee Fewer in San Francisco, kind of has to keep it secret, then put her votes in, uh, even though she's married to a cop and is consistently a vote for for police. But, you know, it is simply not to be said. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, I mean, the Jackie Fielder campaign is is depressing the hell out of me insofar as it's something which is just, you know, 100%, like she put that flyer saying, you know, uh, you know, all these bills by Wiener are going to destroy your neighborhoods, but then portray herself as the, the woke candidate. Yeah, I, I will say with regards to Jackie Fielder, like even even Jackie was willing to say things like St. Francis Wood and Cupertino um, need to build more uh, above moderate housing to house their wealthy workers. You won't find that in Southern California. Yeah, like, that's true. Even even the leftists down there like will will not acquiesce to that point that like Beverly Hills should build some more housing like regardless of what kind it is and I, you know frankly like it's it says a lot about politics down there and and I think you're very right in your assessment that I think things are about 5 years behind down there um on this issue compared to where things are in northern california yeah, I mean, there's a break, and I think it's actually, it's on the verge of breaking, which is to say, like, in San Francisco, uh, five years ago, it was off the table to talk about upzoning West Portland or San Francis Wood, uh, even though they're these, you know, extremely bougie, extremely affluent, exclusionary, uh, you know, homeowner communities. Uh, but now you even have, uh, you know, the uh, the SF you know, left, uh, you know, wing or the prog wing, uh talking about it it's like okay i think i think we're seeing 
we're seeing some movement here. Uh, but I to, to me, it just comes down to, you know, what is, you know, I mean, we're talking about a lot of this is this is the, the, the topology of, of the NIMBYs. And the question is, what, what should the left do in response? And there's some people who say like this, you know, if it hurts your, if it hurts your priors, some people say, I refuse to believe livable California is real. You know, to me, I think they're made up by uh, the Wall Street yimbies, the yumbos, they're, they're just making up all these, all these uh, people. And I wish that were the case, man. It would be I so really, easy, I yeah. really wish that were the case. I wish this was a yimby psyop. Like, yeah. Uh, but it, it just goes down to the point, like, it's, you know, okay, what what do you do? Because it's it's very funny if you say, it's okay, you know, I am designing myself to be the ideal uh, left person, which is, that's a funny thing about left politics. A lot of it is actually people who, you know, don't really have goals in mind as much as their goal is to be the best leftist, and they move from there. And so you collect all the different policy positions you want, and then you end up as the perfect leftist. And what is, I think, you know, that happens is like, okay, uh, you take IZ, uh, in, in, you know, uh, inclusionary zoning, knock it up to 50%, 60%, 70%. Uh, should you build any market rate housing? No, knock that down to zero. Uh, if you should, what you do, only public housing, and it should be only, uh, you know, 10% AMI, or make it, you know, 0% AMI. And you, the thing that surprises these people, because every one of those little levers sounds like more, more woke, more left. But when you put it all together, you realize that Lydia Ku is saying literally the same things you are, and then they get angry because they think, wait, you know, how dare you say Lydia Ku is saying the same things I am? But she is. She's literally saying the same things which sound like the most left housing policy, which I think is an indication uh, that this Palo Alto realtor is not actually a good ally and your policy positions are actually wrong, would be my conclusion. That that would be my conclusion as well, although... I, you know, I've, I've found that my conclusions have not typically been necessarily the conclusions of other leftists. Um, (sighs) I, I, it, 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 the thing about it is, I mean, where does everyone belong in different spaces? And there is two different ways you go at it. One is you can either be kind of policy oriented or you can be about community oriented. In the unfortunate thing, I mean, I think here's the thing: neither are neither are right or wrong, and both are wrong in interesting ways. I think people who exist in the policy space can be very head in the clouds; they don't know how to build movements. Uh, they can be very, you know, ivory tower. Just oh, if I only was the technocratic uh, czar here, I could fix everything, and that's very dangerous. Uh, but at the same, if you only live in community land, then you it's all about when you see a crowd of people that seem like they're, you know, for whatever reason, seem like the right side, you join them, you get in lockstep, and you fight for it, which I would say San Francisco and other places, you look at, you know, the history of, you know, Kotkin running for the Guardian, it's a history of of very granola-feeling, you know, kind of community-based movements that I would say have effectively been very misguided. And that's a very hard place for people to be, to realize that even if you have a crowd of people, even sometimes of very good demographic mixes of socioeconomic mixes that seem like they must be right, they might be wrong. And that sounds arrogant and paternalistic in some sense, but I refuse to say that isn't true. Some even crowds <laughs> of people can be wrong. That no, I, I definitely I definitely think that's true to a certain extent. There there is a certain concern over like mob idea, um, for for lack of a better term. <laughs> 
<laughs> for again, for for you know, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah, but yeah, be, I, I don't know what the better term is, but I'll work on it. And and I I don't really I don't really know what the answer is. Um, I I wish I wish I did because because you're right. Um, the the whole mob rule thing isn't isn't um, the way to go. But like top down solutions often do appear and come off as paternalistic. And so I mean I I guess the way you know in in my mind the way you do this is you do you can do top-down planning with you know there i think there has to be and is some hybrid model yeah i mean i think i mean it's a classic dialectic i think here's the thing i think people who are the classic you know uh vulgar you know old style yimbies i think were were only top-down focused and i think also missed a lot because they just had one big idea they pursued i think the classic vulgar communitarian uh, voices, which, and by the way, I, I use communitarian uh, in the same way that John Morris uses it, because that's his <laughs> goal of, compu- of protecting the communitarian, uh, you know, uh, aims of Beverly Hills. Uh, I think they missed a lot, but I think when you get people who do listen to each other and realize, okay, they're not wrong for no good reason, they're wrong for at least some good reason, and vice versa, I think you do find some sort of synthesis in which something good can come out of it. And I'm I'm pretty optimistic in some senses that we're moving slowly towards that. I I would definitely agree with that. I I think both groups are are slowly inching towards you know more of a consensus, I guess. There there are of course going to be setbacks. Um you know, you'll like like you mentioned earlier, you'll see Jackie Fielder lit, you know, uh slamming Scott Wiener bills. You'll see him be action endorsing Valley Brown again. Um, As Valley Brown just gets more and more ghoulish, you know, I yes. think that I think she's realizing, OK, you can't, you know, uh, out equity. So why not just <laughs> I, I, she's, I mean, she's she's protesting. Uh, what was it? The homelessness uh, organization or what was going on? Yeah, there? I mean, so she was she was phone banking with um, some some NIMBY anti homeless orgs in in the hate, which like. Valley Brown's going to get those votes anyway, frankly, like they're never going to vote for Dean Preston. So why you would, you know, wholesale embrace them is, I mean, why you would wholesale embrace them for any reason is absurd to me, but it's extra absurd considering that she's going to get those votes anyway. And I mean, I know that's kind of a, um, you know, distraction and uh, off topic to a certain extent, but, but yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I and again, the synthesis, I would love to see people who are the, oh, we need more housing to say, what are, you know, the, 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 the bright line you cannot cross, which is you cannot just be, uh, you know, anti-homeless, you can't be pro-sweeps, you know, that's the bright line, and at the same time, I think that you need to see people who are good on homeless issues and tenants issues, what is a bright line you can't cross, it's like, well, pl- you know, please don't pander uh, you know, to George Wooding and people who are just, you know, uh, you know, just craven, uh, you know, NIMBYs over housing heights in the Haight-Ashbury neighborhood, co- you know, council. You yeah. Know, it's like- or, or, you know, please don't, when you are finally elected to the board of supervisors, please don't block, you know, four unit projects on vacant lots. Like that's not, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's a very frustrating dichotomy in that um, San Franciscan should not have to choose between someone who supports upzoning but hates the homeless and someone who um you know is going to appeal for unit projects but will will protect tenants at every turn 
Um, that is just a toxic, toxic dichotomy, and I, I feel I feel bad for, yeah. for San Franciscans who have to make that choice. I mean, you see the same thing in smaller in smaller you know doses everywhere. But I think there's one more kind of dividing line, which is if you look at. Uh, if you look at, you know, people who are pie-in-the-sky idealists like myself, I feel like I have, you know, slowly, you know, I mean, I would say, I, not to be, like, full of myself, I believe that I do at least have a vision on how you can have an equitable, just, abundant housing world, but the politics are completely impossible. It's, it's, it's very hard. Whereas, I think that people who have a more politically feasible path forward you know, like a Dean Preston, I think that's a very it's a very easy campaign to sell. What is his plan to actually bring housing costs down in in San Francisco? I'd say he doesn't have one. You know, he he there is no real plan to I would say at once add new capacity or change the sale price. There's a vague a vague overture to okay, we'll somehow uh, finby our way out of this, but there is no real policy guidelines. No, not not really. And I mean, there there are a lot of platitudes that sound very nice. Um, if we say human is, housing is human right enough, uh, then suddenly you'll become cheap. Yes, um, which unfortunately, tragically, if only that were the way it worked, and yet it is it is not. Um, no, I, I think there I think there are a lot of strategies to to achieve these goals, but uh, I, I mean, it's it's sort of it really does come back to platitudes in a lot of cases, right? Like take his um, real estate transfer tax that uh, I forget what it, it only goes down to homes that are $10 million. That's right. That's right. Something like that. Um, Like, you know, it it would make sense to when every home in San Francisco virtually is selling for over a million dollars, you know, you know, maybe bring that range down. Um, so so tell me tell me this uh, do do Mary McNamara and Dennis Richards attend these Little California still? Uh no. I've I've never seen Mary there and Dennis as far as I know only attended that one um you know in-person meeting uh where where he spoke and then shortly shortly after that was when he was removed from the planning commission. Um well I <laughs> shouldn't say removed. I think uh I think technically he resigned. Um yeah. but I mean, it's it's you know it's I, I that that's part of the evolution is you know you think that you never would have the weird uh, woke semi you know at least ostensibly progressive face who is doing these weird uh, speculative evictions behind the scenes like uh, you wouldn't expect that hypocrisy to exist but but it does uh, and it sort of some, embodies livable California to an extent. <laughs> yeah, and here's the thing too. I think it's really funny that. Uh, you know, the entire right wing is saying, it's like, oh, look at this. Obama is anti-NIMBY, but really he's a NIMBY because he lives in an exclusionary you know, neighborhood. And it's like, actually, you're, you're, you're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, and you get, the <laughs> sa- you get the same people. Joel Kotkin says, look at these you know, hypocritical boomers. These boomers, they've enjoyed low-density California dream their whole life. And now that they're old, they've turned their back on them. And now they're for higher density. And he's like... I guess you know you are right that like some people have been hip- hypocritical that they've along the way have have you know not always had the, the the best housing policies, but I mean that's really all they got now is just kind of pointing out uh, you know hypocrisy in some senses. Suppose the fact that, yes you should 
you should take away the exclusionary zoning even in Obama's neighborhood, you know, but that, that that is one of my favorite one of my favorite livable California lines is that Scott Weiner is a hypocrite because he grew up in suburban New Jersey. Um, yeah. and that is it's just endlessly funny to me. Like you don't choose where you grew up. Yeah, like he experienced that. He like moved away and like figured out that everyone should be able to afford a home and um, you know, now now fights for high density housing. Like it, it's just sort of a wild. They will grasp at any straw they possibly can, and I I do really think the core the core you know li- uh, livable Californian is you know this very hypocrisy of dressing dressing their views up in in this woke uh, in this woke language. Um, you know from. Susan Kirch talking about the financialization of housing while running an Airbnb um, from Dennis Richards railing about uh, market rate, you know, speculators and then illegally flipping a property um, from John Merritt, uh, John Marish talking about, you know, decommodifying housing when what he's really talking about is, okay, I guess I would maybe be okay with like cutting off a couple hundred grand from my multi-million dollar property value. That That is really what livable California is. And it doesn't take much to see that. And it's, I mean, what I really wonder is how this evolves because you have people who are less, you know, cultured. I mean, you have the extreme, like the anti-white genocide, uh, you know, people like Nestle. But on top of that, like, you know, Kotkin, you, you, I, I was binging several of his podcasts uh, you know, about, you know, he's he's against feudalism now, which is, it's it's like, it's more Jeffersonian. He's just kind of saying, like, stuff is broken. He has the tools. Okay. I mean, I, I'm sure I believe you now. Uh, but he just goes on and on. A lot of it is just about standard, like, you know, cancel culture and anti-PC. And he talks about, uh, he, like, this big thing. He was, he was outraged that Dianne Feinstein wasn't endorsed because uh, Kevin De, De Leon represents the radical left. Uh, everything is neo-Marxism and neo-Maoism. And, like, I feel like that's just, you know, you're not going to work with the gullible actual leftists if you, you can't shut up about that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I appreciate I appreciate livable California in that like they make it very clear where they stand. Like they're not good at it. They're like they they do use this language of what you know this woke language and this language of equity, but they're not good at it because they don't understand the actual underlying principles and ideologies. And so yes. you know what what you end up with is Lydia Ku talking about fimbyism without understand and in you know in one breath and then talking about soviet style housing uh in the next yeah it's it's wonderful and so i would say like in some sense there's the, it's almost like the difference between like you know uh salvation through faith versus salvation through acts and like really to be the proper liberal california mindset it's all about having the right you know you know idea you are virtuous because you believe in the california dream and I would say if you really want an equitable world, in my mind, you have to actually be pushing towards certain things which produce equity. 
to me, this would mean actually doing things to remove the investment aspects of home ownership, such as actually opposing Prop 13. I think that's a very baseline. I think some people continue to be NIMBYs, but at least get that right. Like a Tim Redmond type is at least that woke. But, you know, I think honestly, you if you poll uh, Liberal California, how many people do you think would even say, uh, yes, we need to repeal residential Prop 13? Uh, I don't know, maybe 1% if that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Tim Redman, at least knowing that much, uh, as far as like, because he knows like, oh, it's not going to happen because of all the chuds. So I might as well say, of course, it should be repealed. But you know, you don't have to, you don't have to do anything. Yeah, I mean, I'd... it it calls to mind. There's a little California meeting where someone mentioned uh, the Schools and Communities First uh, Act, uh, Prop 15, and people absolutely flipped out and were like, "Wait, what? <laughs> you're talking about? You're talking about?" isn't that chipping away at Prop 13? And isn't that chipping away at the protection of homeowners? And it's like, well, there you go. There you go. And I mean, honestly, if I was being cynical, I think every selfish homeowner should support Prop 15, if only because it's going to mean a huge faucet of money that homeowners won't have to contribute to, and it probably will, you know, save their skins for a couple more decades. You know, that's kind of my dismal... It's my oh, dismal. Oh, absolutely. Like you'd you'd have to be yeah, you you'd ha- you'd have to be particularly uninformed, um, which again is is not unlikely when it comes to homeowners. Um, but you would have to be particularly uninformed um and, and ignorant as a homeowner to um really to to oppose Prop fifteen in the sense that you have all of these different municipalities, especially the suburban ones that they live in who were subsidized initially and are now, you know, failing and crumbling because the infrastructure has gone to absolute over the last 50 years because the money is not there to support it because they don't have the density. And if they were smart, they would support Prop 15 because this turns on an extra spigot of cash um, that they that they can use to repair their crumbling uh, they're crumbling towns. Most of those people are not that bright and will not do that. And I mean, I guess it remains to be seen. Yeah. I mean, I to find, I mean, here's the thing. I feel like most of these people can't keep their ideas straight at all. Like these people are just goldfish. Joel Kotkin seems like a grand theorist compared to most of them. And I'd say Joel Kotkin compared to a Calvin Welch is a dummy you know it's like i it's it's really hard when you're fighting against the uh, kind of an ideological framework which is i think just fundamentally so shoddy no one really like i don't see very many uh kind of you know upstanding uh you know opponents i respect there it's just a lot of it's a lot of just might equals right like i got mine and these people don't even really believe in anything yeah, and and I I think that's I think that's relatively you know you you look at someone like Lydia Ku who has no coherent ideology whatsoever and and I do think I do think that applies to most of livable California I I think it is mostly I like my home the way it is I like my little town the way it is I was promised this American dream of a white picket fence and a little suburban house or a big suburban house. And I like that the property value has gone up, but I do not want any kind of apartments or duplexes or triplexes or or anything else near me. And that's really, I think, largely for most of the members as far as the ideology goes. 
Yeah, Joel Kotkin has a great article from a few years ago, and it says, like, uh, Scott Wiener is destroying the California dream, is the headline or something like that. And then below it, it's uh, the, the, the art, the artwork for the article is the Leave it to Beaver uh, credits uh, of, of a suburban California house with a big, like, red X through it. Uh, which is like, that's really it. It's just the aesthetics of my, you know, 1950s childhood. They're taken away from me. I mean, he's from, he's, he's from New York. He actually didn't even have it. Uh, but like, it's like the dream of that childhood is being taken away from me. It's like, you, I mean, nostalgia and aesthetics are not an ideology. <laughs> that's, no, you know, no yeah. they're, they're not. They're not. And that is why I think things get really complicated, right? Because when you look at, you do have, you have guys like Dan uh, D.B. Cher from Oak, or not from Oakland, from Orinda, and Stephen Nestle from Marinwood um, on the same call as, you know, Jackie Fielder supporters. And it's because of nostalgia. It's not because of ideology. It's because of nostalgia and aesthetic preference. Um, that's yeah. and that that's where it comes in. There are, there are these very there are these very interesting ties that bind these people to wanting the same thing. Um, but I I do think other than nostalgia and aesthetics, I think many of them can be broken. Yes, and I, I mean, here's the thing. I think you, you're the the you know the boomers. You're never going to win them over. You just have to outlast them. But I have a lot of faith. I I mean, I would say I'm very, I'm very disappointed in the Jackie Fielder campaign. But I honestly think there's glimmers of hope. You know, her at least saying Beverly Hills, Palo Alto, St. Francis Wood is bad. Uh, she said it once in January, but that's better than nothing. And I think really the fact, I mean, I, again, this is me being way too full of myself. But the left urbanists are winning because they actually believe in something coherent, whereas everyone else is just kind of like slowly being eroded because they don't actually have, you know, anything they believe in. They're just slowly, slowly, slowly just like uh, realizing, okay, I need to stop looking at these Michael Storper articles and all these like weird, like they'll just, it's, it's just, it's so, it's so revealing that they'll pick up any scrap that, that, that supports them. It's, it's uh, Joe Kotkin. He has like his own thing. Wendell Cox is like his, his head research guy at large. He has him on for every single article. He's on his like podcast and he's just the guy who he produces the weird articles that say he's the only guy in the world that believes that suburban living is less carbon intensive than urban living. But, you know. I, I will say he's not the only guy in the world. There's also this sort of ties back to something we talked about earlier in the episode. Um, there is there's this triumvirate of Wendell Cox and Joel Kotkin um, and another guy uh, named Stanley Kurtz. And okay. Stanley Kurtz is also of that Wendell Cox, Joel Kotkin, like conservative mindset. Um but like sort of even more so than uh, than the other two. Um, and Kurtz was recently on, uh, it's either Mark, it, I think it's Mark Levin on Fox News. Sure, well, he, he was like, I, I watched that episode. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. which, was, which was mentioned in the Livable California chat. Um, a, uh, a NIMBY was basically like, everyone should tune into this. It's tomorrow at five. It's Mark Levin with Stanley Kurtz. And he's going to be talking about, you know, Biden's attack on the suburbs. Um, and Stanley Kurtz is, is part of, you know, sort of this triumvirate of, he cites uh, Kotkin and Cox all the time in his books. Uh, his, his one, one that I picked up recently just to like see, you know, sort of get into the minds of these people. Um, 
his main book is How Obama is Robbing the Suburbs to Pay for the Cities, which is an nice. absolutely hilarious premise. Yeah, um, I, 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 the very beginning of the Kot, uh, sorry, of, of the Levin show uh, with uh, with uh, Kurtz, he says, "What is their plan? They they're angry at the suburbs because the suburbs they're they they take their tax revenues away, and the cities are selfishly think they deserve it. It's like, no, I mean, it's insane. I mean, like here's the thing: they do deserve it. When you build suburbs on the edge of a city, it's because you're parasitically enjoying the amenities of the city and then keeping it to yourself. There should like the city should annex them. Like, just I I don't know how unless you're just you know stomping your feet and saying I don't think it's fair for no good reason. What you. It exists there because it's sucking away the life from the city. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's, and the whole the whole book is really like, like no cities can pay for themselves. It's the, it's literally the opposite. Like suburbs themselves are financially insoluble because there are not enough people to pay for the miles and miles of sewers and roads and infrastructure that you need to maintain it. Um, so it's sort of it's this very wild premise. But Stanley Kurtz is is part of, you know, is very much part of that part of that triumvirate and spends a lot of time citing to Joel Kotkin and and to Wendell Cox. And it's and it's always funny to me to see each of them pop up in in various contexts. I'm I'm hoping I would love to see Stanley Kurtz be a guest on Livable California. That would really be oh, nice. Um just a peace day resistance. Um I mean, would, would I just, I just hope, I just hope they like. Yeah, it would be so cool if they invited the McCloskeys to be on the call or something. You know, <laughs> uh, but, I don't, I don't think you'll ever see that. I mean, they, they don't need to because they've, they've got other people from California who, you know, are liberals and and will say the exact same things as them. Yeah, I, just, I think it's very funny how that line is being drawn because I think, I think in some senses, it's you know, you have to keep a lot of paradoxes in your head in order to keep everything you know sane. But I mean, I, I think to get back to like kind of just evidentiary things, people are so willing to believe like any sort of stats. I mean, uh, so Wendell Cox is doing a lot. He's he's having a field day with you know, COVID. Uh, because the idea is COVID is bad for density. COVID has actually, you know, nuked density forever. I, th- I think you know most urbanists would certainly, I think, be honest. Uh, you know, COVID. Is I mean, Singapore, I think, would have a word or two <laughs> that they'd like yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think here's the thing: COVID is a challenge everywhere. You know, there's no, there's nothing to say like, oh yes, you know, actually, the more dense it is, uh, it's easy. But here's the thing: like, America is an absurdly suburban nation and it's dealing with this absurdly badly suburbanization has certainly not saved us and many places that are much denser than us have actually done a fairly good job but it is the silver bullet in their mind which is two things one is just like looking at the COVID response and drawing very definitive conclusions and the second one saying we should permanently live under the logic of being in a pandemic which is kind of the subtext here yeah, it, it absolutely is. That's that's been one of the things that's that's been frankly interesting to watch with with Livable California. Um, there, there, of course, is this notion amongst them. It, it popped up really quickly once the pandemic happened. Um, yeah. That density is now bad, regardless of any evidence, you know, any and all evidence to the contrary. Like we have now decided. Um, and this is what this is what livable California does. They take things and they adjust them to their points, regardless of whether or not those things are actually true. 
And so immediately once COVID happens, livable California goes, okay, this is high density housing has got to be bad for COVID. Um, yeah, and you, you look at a New York City COVID's map and like a New York City map, Manhattan actually got hit less bad than like Westchester and all these different burbs. And but Wendell Cox on Joe Cockin's podcast had an answer. He says, oh, this is explained. They have high density there. They live elsewhere. The high density is the reason that Manhattan, it's just, you know, so they just come up with like excuses to make up for it. The fact yeah. is like. <laughs> like no evidence to back it up and, you know, yeah. hope that their readers and listeners are are dumb enough not to fact check. And in, and in most cases, that is true. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, 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 I mean, not, I mean, I think my, my main flaw is I think, I think empiricism is so, so difficult in the world of urbanism because you can't do hypotheticals easily. Everyone's just looking at little scraps. I think I probably tend too much towards, uh, you know, theoretical conclusions, but I feel like I try to be very careful and not overextending myself. But it's, you know, I think people who just look in the patterns and just kind of either make these weird toy models of, you know, what is the impact of housing? And they just kind of make this their uh, their conclusions. But, you know, everyone is peddling conclusions through papers that they want to sell to other people who want to hear what they already believe. It's it's all very, very dismal in my yeah. mind. And, and that comes up a lot with Livable California. Um, they basically created their own think tank. Um, I use the I use the words think tank very loosely. Um, the prestigious they, Embarcadero Institute. The prestigious Embarcadero Institute. Um, for those unfamiliar, the Embarcadero Institute um, is this is Embarcadero a, as far as it's as in Palo Alto, not the Embarcadero as far as San Francisco. Correct, correct. Uh, the Palo Alto Embarcadero Institute and Embarcadero was founded by uh, Gabrielle Layton, who is a Palo Alto uh, NIMBY, um, tech millionaire, uh, etc. Um, on the board is Greer Stone, another Palo Alto NIMBY running for uh, running for Palo Alto City Council right now. Friend of the and show. basically what they did is they wrote a couple white papers and argued that actually the report that the Legislative Analyst Office of California did a couple years ago is wrong. Uh, there's not a home shortage of 3.2, 3.4 million homes. It's actually 1.2 million. Um, and uh, really, the housing crisis didn't start in the 70s or 80s. It actually started in 2012 after the state cut off funding for redevelopment agencies. Um, the, state, the same redevelopment agencies that spent that got cut off in the first place because they were spending all their money on football stadiums and not affordable housing. Um, but that is, you know, that is their conclusion. And they present these things as this is real and this is what's happening and this is why it's happening. Um, and it's yeah. very, you know, it, it is, it's Trumpian. Like, it is Trumpian and conservative and peddling, you know, fake news, Fox News bullshit. Um, well, well it's, it's, very, it's very comforting to believe, like, oh, yeah, most of the time, most of the time, uh, you know, all these think tanks and all these nonprofits, they're doing good research. This is the bad research. My, I've just gotten so much more cynical over the years. It was, no, this is the logic of academia and think tanks, nonprofits everywhere. You know, everyone is scratching different itches to have different people uh, get ahead politically and funding-wise and so on. And, I, I mean, I would say the only people I trust anymore are just weirdo 
you know, weirdos on the internet, hopefully autistic in some sense, that just like really are just, they believe in the truth and they just grind at it and aren't in a think tank. <laughs> that's, that's my dismal conclusion. I mean, I think that, I think that's fair to a certain extent. Um, and that is very much a livable California thing. They, they really embrace this idea of like, this sounds good, so let's go with X and then let's find some way to back X up even if there's incredibly shoddy workmanship behind it. Um, even if like a closer look would reveal that we are crazy and none of this actually pans out. Every, everything is a conspiracy theory. You yeah, know, it's yeah, QAnon or, 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 you know, NIMBYism. It's just, it's different flavors, the, the same thing. We're the only people telling you the real truth. The Embarcadero Institute is the only one with the real numbers. You know, they've discovered, they've uncovered the scheme um, of the California government to trick you into building, trick you into thinking that we need millions of new homes when we only need 1.2 million new homes. Um, it, it's absolutely like, right-wing and and conservative and conspiracy theory-esque in in many many ways and the language that they use to um to spread that message is is absolutely on that track yeah i mean here's the thing every ideology is a conspiracy theory and every ideology is going to be wrong and kind of self uh reaffirming in some ways i would only say the ones that feel good which are just like, oh, you are, you are righteous. Like you are a good person. And it's actually this weird cabal of, of, of people behind the curtain that make your life bad. Those make me more suspicious. Whereas, you know, my conspiracy theory is that investment homeownership is bad, which I feel very good insofar as it's probably a better working theory insofar as it makes most people upset it does not fit their priors which there must be something to it you know if, if it's you know, if it's upsetting this many people yeah i think things that feel warm and fuzzy are almost certainly wrong things that feel like if you if you come to believe something and everyone hates you for it it's like oh you're probably onto something <laughs> you know that's that's my only working uh you know framework uh, i mean i i would say obviously i'm i'm somewhat biased because i come from you know the left urbanist or, or left yimby standpoint but but yeah and and that is very much you know I when I'm advocating for something there's almost always someone who is mad at some part of it and I'm like yeah okay this is this is a good you know this is a good um, way of telling that I am on the right track because someone is always mad with something that I'm doing. I, I think yeah I, absolutely. Uh, before we wrap up here, just I, I you don't want to get like too much into the details because it's messy and it doesn't really matter, but. Any any thoughts on you know speaking of COVID tri uh, issues, Caltrain got into a massive uh, you know kind of series of troubles, eventually getting their measure to uh, put a new uh, you know uh, funding source for Caltrain on the ballot this fall. But a big fight of it is San Mateo County versus San Francisco County. Uh, and I'm just as a San Mateo guy, any, any kind of thoughts on, you know, kind of what, do, you know, what is it about San Francisco and San Mateo fighting over Caltrain? Oh God, this is a much longer discussion. Um, <laughs> but to, to sort of boil it down, it's, it's basically, um, everyone is wrong. Like there are, there I are no, it. there are no good actors here. Um, other, other than the people just advocating to try and keep Caltrain like going, you know, San Francisco, it, it sort of came out during, during the meetings about this, that, that San Francisco has some interest in developing some land, 
that they can't currently do because San Mateo uh, governance controls Caltrain really right now. The CEO is also the CEO of Samtrans. Um, they have no, the San Francisco supervisors and, and the other supervisors have no ability to hire or fire him, um, which, which I agree you, as a San Mateo resident is problematic. On, on the other hand, um, they could have they could have dealt with these governance issues uh, a long a long time ago. Um, they they could have dealt with it in a more constructive way rather than holding the railroad hostage. You, That's you the know. only way politics happens. You know, nothing happens the right way. Everything happens with with weird brinksmanship. Yes. You know. Yeah. Well, so were they going to actually just redevelop the yards but keep? the Caltrain station uh, up at 4th and King, or are they actually planning to move that, you know, away from 4th and King? I didn't know what their plans were. It's my understanding that there's supposed to be a downtown extension and they want to do some development around 4th and King. Um, there, there are so many, there's so many issues here though. Like San Mateo County was also owed money. Like there's this deal back in 2008 um, when, when San Mateo, when the three counties originally purchased the the right of way back in the '90s, um, San Mateo put in more money than everyone else, and as as part of that, San Mateo got to run the thing. Um, mm. This was re-upped in 2008, where they basically said San Mateo gets to run the railroad in perpetuity. Um, that was a really bad deal, frankly. It was really dumb, and they shouldn't have signed it, but they did. And one of the people who signed that deal was none other than Aaron Peskin, one of one of the San Francisco supervisors leading the charge to, you know, uh, take it away now. Interesting. Um, so there, there is this like, you know, if, if Aaron Peskin hadn't signed this dumb deal in 2008, like, you know, his chickens have come home to roost because there is an argument to be made that like the San Mateo uh, County Transit Authority is not running the railroad particularly well. Um, <laughs> like there, there is that argument, like... At the same time, you know, Peskin signed this deal uh, 12 years ago to let them do that. So, like, everyone, like I said, everyone is at fault here. Um, and what Adina Levin of Friends of Caltrain has pointed out a number of times, and I think she's dead on here, is that during all of this, it doesn't appear that anyone is actually thinking about the writers. Um, sure. No one was actually thinking about, you know, everyone has their own goals. Um, or rather, all the politicians have their own goals, and no one is actually putting what the writers need first. Um, it, it appears that everything has gotten has gotten ironed out. Um, the language that will that will go on the ballot is now legal. Everyone can uh, come around and get on board with it. There, there, are, you know, likely going to be some governance changes happening in the future, which I think is good. Um, and really, all of this was completely unnecessary. Uh, it was essentially a Bay Area episode of, I don't know if you've seen the, the old British TV show, Yes Minister. Um, mm, it, feels yeah. a, it feels a lot like that. Um, but uh, it, it was a whole lot of grief um, for, for no reason. I mean, that's, As that's is a... tradition in Bay Area politics. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that is the conspiracy theory all around you, is just you look at 
you know, your local transit organizations, you look at your highways, you look at like everything around you, and there are people behind the scenes who are these weird shadowy boards where they all hate each other and they all fight all the time. Uh, you know, it's it, there's no simple solution like Pizzagate here. It's just kind of this dismal thing of, you know, like politics is, you know, it, it is it is a den of, 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 you know, kind of underworld rats, you know, no matter where it is. And, and then, you know, here's the thing, you know. Uh, that's how it is you know it's fine you know deal with it it's a world yeah that that is just politics and that is especially politics in the bay area you've got all these tiny fiefdoms all with their own levers of control and whenever they have to share that control they get bitchy um yeah yeah and that is that is the caltrain debacle in a nutshell well 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 uh okay so we've <laughs> we've, we've gone on i think uh long enough but i think yeah just uh if you want to you know check in to see these liberal california threads uh, they're all, they're all like Saturday mornings every so often. Yeah, so they're generally every I would say every two or three weeks, um, Saturday mornings around ten a.m. I'm hoping there's going to be another one. So AB, uh, excuse me, SB eleven twenty, which is the statewide duplex bill, will either uh, live or die uh, today or tomorrow, and depending on what happens, it it could make for a very interesting episode when whenever the next episode happens. Um, yeah, we're we're recording on Sunday, uh, Sunday the thirtieth of August. Uh, so by the time you get this, it will be decided, uh, presumably later right. this week. So, uh, you know, it's always always plenty of drama, and there's nothing that gets people more upset than the idea of, of a duplex being built in their block. God forbid. Yep. So, yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, you can find you on Twitter, Cafe Du Jord. Uh, you can uh, or just search your name. It, it'll work. That is correct. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Mark. We have been hearing from Jordan Grimes of Peninsula for Everyone all about Livable California, their calls, their ideology, and much more. As always, you can hear the entire program as well as previous episodes at the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Keys Issue, Stanford. <laughs>